Good morning. Good to be with you again in the uh, glories of the outdoors. Uh, wanted to say this morning a, a word of thanks uh, to uh, the congregation. We have been uh, standing behind uh, Jimmy and Leanne Grant as they have moved toward adoption, of growing their family, of bringing a child into their home. And uh, they did a garage sale that we've asked a number of people to help with and to donate. And uh, the outpouring of stuff, the amount of stuff that was given was amazing. Um, almost filled the church leading up to it. And the uh, garage sale was yesterday. There were a number of you who helped. You came during the week. You came on the day. And uh, so many folks behind the scenes helping, preparing, pricing, setting up. Uh, and the grants were able to raise over $8,000 which is about a third of the cost of the whole process. So praise be to God. We are so grateful to be able to be a part of that and to support that. Uh, we say along the way, if we're going to be pro-life, we have to be pro-life all the way, not just against abortion, but for adoption, and that we need to stand and to, to help and to assist and to be a part of, uh, just as we were adopted, the adoption of children into families. This morning we are in Romans chapter 3. Verses 9 to 20, talking about the whole world that is accountable to God. We're reaching the end, uh, the capstone of Paul's argument from Romans 1 to 3, uh, bringing the whole world under the accountability of God's judgment. And uh, he's been building his case piece by piece, chapter by chapter. And uh, this morning is sort of the capstone. What really laid out in this text is the, the doctrine of total depravity. It lays out the guilt of humanity in our fallenness and our brokenness, not only our guilt, but in our corruption and of our need. And this is where Paul is going, is our, our need for a savior. It is only the sick who seek a doctor. Paul is bringing us to realize our sickness. So read with me then. We're in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. If you have your Bible, will you find it and read along and follow along as we walk through it to see what God would say to us in this text. Paul writes and he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. And now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped in the whole world, may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law, comes the knowledge of sin.
I think my fan is going to have to be a paperweight. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we come to your word this morning because we need you to speak to us. We need you to tell us the truth about us and about our world, about our need spiritually and deeply for a Savior to tell us about who you are and the judgment that is to come. We need the truth. We need our hearts and our minds open to it, bowed before it, humbled by it. And then we need the gospel. Oh, we need hope. We live in desperate times and we are desperate for hope. Would you speak that hope to us afresh this morning? For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. These are strange and confusing times when the virus has many of us trapped. <laughs> Thank you. Has us trapped in our houses for days on end and months on end. When the world is literally grown apart. It's a visual of the way that we are literally being torn apart by the things that are going on in our world as we social distance and we avoid the most vulnerable. We have this visual distance, this physical distance that in my mind is a picture of what is going on in the hearts and in the fabric, in the social fabric of our country and of the world. There's injustice and brutality. We see it on TV. There's rioting and protesting in our streets, in our country and around the world. Americans seem to be more divided than ever by racial injustice in our thoughts concerning that, as those who seem to respond, seek to respond to it and, and those who interpret the problem differently and come at the answers differently. By the coronavirus, physically and literally, but also in our understanding of that, our interpretation of that, our response to that. It's very strange to me just how these things, rather than uniting us as believers, have in so many ways brought tension into the world, but also into the body. The politics of it all. It seems more obvious now than ever that the whole world is fallen and broken and needs a Savior. And we need the Savior in the church more, in a sense, than ever to awaken as sometimes as the need grows, as our awareness of the need grows and our awareness of our need for Christ grows and our, our relying on him, our turning to him, our praying to him, our trusting in him can grow in proportion to the need because he is adequate to all our need. It's only more obvious now because of pestilence and unrest and uncertainty and it's more obvious now because it's come to our shores in so many ways. We, as Americans, are shielded from the worst of it around the world. But in so many ways, what we're experiencing is normal around the world. It is throwing us because it has come to our shores. It is, it is beginning to impact our lives. And so we are beginning to have to deal with it. But the truth is that throughout history and across the world, injustice and violence, and war, and famine, and disease, and uncertainties are the everyday fare of human beings 
all across our globe and all across history. There's nothing new, nothing surprising in what is happening. But there is hope. There's hope in the midst of it. There always has been. People around the world and through history have found it. There is hope. And it's not in our next president, whoever he may be. It's not in a vaccine, however soon they may develop it. It's not in police reform, however far they're able to advance it. These things may help for a bit and they may be true and good things to pursue, but they're not our ultimate hope. Our hope doesn't abide in these things. These things are as temporal as the, the grass and the, and the day is long. These things do not last. They will come again here and elsewhere. The main subject of the book of Romans is the free grace of God for the salvation of all who will put their faith and their trust in Christ for now and for eternity. That to live is Christ and to die is gain. Whatever the world brings to live is Christ. And whenever death comes, it is gain for those who know and love and trust in Christ. In Christ, God is redeeming and saving a people out of the world for himself and for an eternity. From both Jew and Gentile, from every nation, from every language, tribe, and tongue. He's gathering a people. He's building a kingdom. A kingdom that is not of this world. And so Paul is going to show that this testimony, this is the testimony of the Jewish scriptures themselves. You know, he's writing 2,000 years ago, and he's writing to a mixed bag. He's writing to a Jewish and Gentile church, and he's trying to bring unity in that church. He's trying to bring one new man out of, of all the division, out of all the racial divides and all the economic and social divides. He's trying to bring one new man in Christ to break down the walls of hostility, to break down those divisions. That's the whole purpose of the book of Romans is to break all that down and to bring us together in unity. And he's going to show that the scriptures, the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures themselves teach the universal need for a savior. So in verse 1, Paul had asked the question, if you go back to chapter 3, verse 1, he had asked the question, what advantage has there been for the Jew? What has been the advantage? What was the point? And Paul's answer is going to be there, there was a lot of advantages. They were given so many advantages, but primary and central and summary to all those advantages are the oracles of God, the revelation of God, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. So what advantage? The Old Testament. And now in verse 9, he asks a similar question, doesn't he? And he says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? It's a similar question, but different. The first one was open-ended and gave some answers. A lot of advantages. I can list them for you. Scriptures being at the top of the list. This is a yes or no question. Are the Jews any better off because of all their advantages? And his answer is no. And not just no, but an emphatic no, not at all. No, not at all. 
See, the Jews, the Jews had assumed that they were in a, a better position than everyone else because they had the advantages, because they had the scriptures. But those advantages don't save you. And the law and all of the great gifts that they had don't change the human heart. The law reveals the human heart, but it doesn't change and save the human heart. So in 1 to 8, the verses leading up to this, Paul was addressing the perceived objections of the Jews against the idea that they were as guilty as the Gentiles. And so he addresses their objections to that idea that they're just as guilty as everyone else, that though they had the law, they could not keep the law. And into the law was built its own failure. They couldn't keep the law, which is why part of the law was a ceremonial law that gave them the temple in sacrifice. And the sacrifice, there was a, a bloody Old Testament. Why? To cover their sin and their failure to keep the law. The law revealed that you couldn't keep it. Even the Jews couldn't keep it. And so the blood of bulls and goats temporarily held the place saying you need a substitute. You need someone to die in your place. You need someone to bear your guilt. They too are sinners under the guilt and the power of sin. And so under the judgment of God and they too need a savior. And there's a real irony that we should not miss in the text. We're in verse 1 when Paul asks, what is the advantage of the Jew? And he tells them that it's the scriptures that God has given them. is at the top of that list. And then in verse 9, when he goes to say, are they any better off because of their advantages? And his answer is to go to the scriptures. The very thing that was their advantage over other people's throughout their history, the very scriptures that, that were the greatest gift and advantage to the Jews are the very thing that Paul now goes to. And you see running down through the rest of the, most of the rest of the text, verses 10 to 18, he's doing nothing but quoting the Old Testament, nothing but marshalling passage after passage of scripture to bring home their guilt from their own scripture, from their own law to, to show them, to reveal to them, their need for a Savior. And in that sense, he puts the final nail in the coffin of Jewish self-righteousness because their own scripture and their own law condemns them. But it's not only the nail, the last nail in the coffin of their self-righteousness, it's the last nail in the coffin of all human righteousness. As he says in the end of verse 9, this is, he marshals all this, he says, to show that both Jews and Greeks, that the whole world is under sin and under judgment. It's to bring the whole world to the same place of seeing our need. And so in verse 20, his summary is, by the works of the law, no human being, Jew or Gentile, by your own works, by what you do, by how you live, by the good things that you can pull out of yourself, by the works of the law, no human being is going to ultimately be justified. They will not be able to stand right before God, justified before the law. They will stand condemned. Since it is through the law that the knowledge of sin comes, not salvation, the law cannot save. What comes through the law 
is the revelation of our need for a Savior. And so God himself, through his word, brings conviction. In verse 9, all are under sin. All are guilty. And in verse 19, then all are accountable to God. Galatians 3.22 puts it this way. The scripture has imprisoned everything under sin. Everything and everyone is part of the fall. Bears its brokenness. Bears its corruption. Bears its guilt. The scripture declares and reveals. And that's what it means by it has imprisoned everything under it. It has brought the word of God to bear on the situation. And in that sense makes it clear and irrevocable. That everything is under the power of sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all of those who believe. Every nation, language, tribe, and tongue so that all may be saved. And that's where Paul is going. The whole point of the bad news here is to drive us toward the good news. To drive us to the fact that all may be saved through faith in Christ. And so secondly, we want to say that no one is righteous. And that's what the next number of verses tell us through 10 through 18. That no one is righteous. Paul goes to the Psalms. He goes to the Proverbs. He goes to Ecclesiastes. He goes to Isaiah. He goes to the gamut of Old Testament scripture. He chooses a bunch of key phrases out of those texts. And he, and he stacks them here. These are very carefully chosen scriptures. As Paul stacks them together because there was a lot more material to work with than he pulled. But like so much of the scripture, they, they select to bring together a message. A nice, sharp sword point to prove the sin and the guilt. And if you go and look at the context of these scriptures, some of them I was reading the one out of Isaiah. And the whole passage is a long, blistering indictment of the nation of Israel. So he takes one sample text, one particular thing that he wants to, to put into this as he hones a sword to bring home the truth of God. So that there's no escape. He chooses texts that say none, no, not one, no one, no one, all together, no one, not even one. Like He, he chooses those texts from different places that that are inclusive and universal. No, not one. And this is the case that Paul has been making since chapter 1. Bringing an indictment against the whole world. And this is the capstone of that argument using the scriptures themselves. No one is righteous before God. In verses 11 and 18 are bookends. Well, verses 10 and 18 are bookends. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. No one seeks God in verse 18, and there's no fear of God before their eyes. No one seeks him, and there's no fear of him before them. The bookends of the indictment of the state of the human race. That God is not at the center. God is not their king. He is not their Lord. They're not embracing his law. They're not walking in his ways. They're not seeking to please him and to worship him. No one seeks God. 
The fear of him is not before their eyes. Each has gone their own way. They are their own Lord. They have dethroned him and they have established themselves as their own law and their own king. And so no one is righteous because we've exalted ourselves in our own hearts. In our hearts rather than submitting and seeking and walking in his ways are in rebellion. This is what we see around us. This is what we see in the world. This is the way of the world. This is the indictment that describes the entire human race apart from Jesus Christ and the presence and the power of his Holy Spirit. This is the predicament that binds, that binds all of the human race together. Paul graphically illustrates it in the verses that follow. Right, He goes from the head to the feet. Right, choosing parts of the body from the head down to the feet. The throat, the tongue, the lips. This is what we call total depravity. Theologians have, have given it a name, this idea that from head to foot, every human being from head to foot is total. It's all people and it's the whole person. From the understanding to the lips, which only express the state of the heart, down to the feet and the way we live, and the deeds that we do, you know, it, 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 it gives that idea of our, our walking around, our, our living. So from our head to our foot, from our, our thoughts to our words to our deeds, he says they're all corrupt. Every person, each part and the whole. And so Stott says it this way. John Stott, pastor and commentator, says sin affects every part of the human constitution, every faculty and every function including our mind, our emotions, our sexuality, our conscience, our will. Every faculty and every function. There's no part of the human being that is left unbroken, untainted, untouched. It's not that we're all as bad as we can be, but there are none of us who are right like we should be. And that un rightness, that unrighteousness touches every part, our mind, our words, our heart, our feet, our living. We were made to worship. We were made to know and love God. And so it is striking when he says that there is not only no one who is righteous, no, can't find one, search as you might, no one understands. No one seeks for God. No one seeks for him. Not, not the God who is there. We were made to worship, and so the whole world seeks for something to worship, someone to worship. The whole world is a worshiping race. But no one seeks God. No one seeks the God who is there. No one seeks the God of the Bible. No one seeks the Holy One, the judge of all the earth, whose law is holy and whose ways are true and binding upon us. This is the God in whom they are in rebellion by their worship of every other God and every other thing. And so their throat, their tongues, their lips, verses 13 and 14, out of the heart, Jesus says, the mouth speaks. And so these verses really aim at the heart, even though it's the words, right? The head and the understanding and the words that flow from it flow from the heart. 
Out of the abundance of the heart flow corruption. And our feet, in verses 15 to 17, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they've not known. Their feet are swift and their paths are wrong. Misery marks their way. They're destroyers of the peace. See, the understanding that should seek Him, the lips that should praise Him, and the feet that should walk in His ways have all gone astray, have all gone to their own way, have all exalted themselves in their own thoughts, their own law, and their own moral choices, and their own lifestyles, in their own way. They've all gone astray. No one, he says, does good. Thoughts, words, and deeds. Spurgeon summarizes it this way. He says, the race, the human race, is one. There's a solidarity about it. And when God speaks concerning men, he describes the whole race without exception. He describes the whole race without exception. Which is how he reaches his conclusions then in verse 19. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped, may be silenced. And the whole world, the whole of it. Every person and the whole of them held accountable to their God. See, in case the Jews might want to say that the passages that he's been pulling out of the Old Testament and, and quoting to them, in case that you might want to say, well, those didn't apply to us. Those apply to the Gentiles and the rest of the world. Surely that's true of everybody else, but surely it's not true of us. And Paul marshals again to say, sure. You need to understand that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. You're the ones who had it. You're the only ones reading it. It's talking to you. If it's talking to anybody, we know that whatever it says, it says to those who have it and are under it. And not only that, if you, if you go and, and look at the context of every single one of these texts that Paul marshals, every single one of them, the context is, a prophet speaking to Israel or a psalmist speaking to Israel. He's speaking to, to them clearly in the context. And so it does apply to everyone. If it applies to them, then they already know and believe it applies to everybody else. Whatever it says, it says to those under the law, they're not exempt. It's talking to you. And as it was talking to them, it is talking to us. It's talking to us. It describes where we are and what we are apart from Christ and the life and power of His Spirit. Oh, but for the grace of God. Right? Oh, but for His grace. The Scripture is so clear. It's so conclusive. It stops every mouth. Someone is caught in the act, and you've seen it before, I've seen it so many times depicted, or even yourself. When you're caught in the act, all you can say is nothing. 
caught me. <laughs> right? The, the evidence is so overwhelming. Like uh, I, I see it and I, I've known it or I've recorded it. I've filmed it on my, my phone. You know, I've I recorded it. I have a record of it. And it's so clear. It's so undeniable. What are we going to say? There's nothing left to say. There's no defense to be made. Every mouth is stopped. And so he seals the argument in verse 20, which speaks again to Jews, but again, beyond that to all of us. For by the works of the law, that is by our, by our own doing, by our own rightness, by our doing good things and right things and nice things, which we should do. He says, but by doing those things, we're never going to be right enough, good enough, holy enough to earn God's favor, to earn his salvation. All have sinned, he's going to say in this next portion of chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory. No matter what right things that we have managed to do. And he wants us to abandon our own righteousness, which in the next two chapters he comes after that, to abandon our own righteousness so that we will trust in Christ and in his righteousness alone. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But by faith in Jesus Christ, any flesh could be justified. Any of us could be saved. He says, rather the law reveal sin it doesn't the law is not a way to be saved it's not by doing those things that are in the law that we can make ourselves righteous enough to be saved that's not the purpose of the law it's never the purpose of the law because the law is weak through our flesh where human fallenness will never never meet the standard the purpose of the law is not to save us it's to reveal the fact that we need saving right it's to show us that we can't do it. And no matter how hard we try, even since being a Christian and having the law and studying it all the time and knowing what it says and understanding it by God's grace and the illumination of his spirit, I still find I can identify with Paul in Romans 7. The things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, they're the things I find myself doing. And I did them this week. The law reveals that brokenness, that inability, that sinful core that needs, I'll take your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. The law, by teaching us what is right and true, exposes our inability to fulfill it. This is the central purpose of the law. We'll look at the time for your benefit. So just a couple of quick applications then. A few things to draw out of this doctrine of total depravity. That you and I, through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, through faith in him and the outpouring of his spirit, causing us to be born again and to renew us in his image and to begin to transform us in the right direction. A few things as we look at this text, and the first is simply this. The first application of this unrelenting, irrefutable indictment of the universal sin and guilt of all people is that Je this is why Jesus came. Jesus came to bear the guilt of our sin. He came to pay the penalty for our sin. He came so that by faith in him, we could be forgiven of all of our sin, 
of all of that failure, of all of that falling short, all of it that is in our past, of all of it that you're going to do today when you go home, all of it that you do in the future, of all of our sin, Jesus came to bear our guilt in his own body on the cross to pay its penalty and to deliver us from its power and from its guilt. All this bad news has been intended to point us to the amazing news that God has done something about it. That He did not leave us where He found us. He doesn't leave us in our sin, but He offers us in Christ a way of forgiveness and a way of mercy. And so the question is, will you put your faith in Christ? Will you look away from yourself and, and turn away from your rebellion? Will you take yourself off the throne of your heart, bow the knee to Christ and embrace him as king and embrace him as savior, as the one who delivers you from the guilt of your sin, but as your king and by the power of his spirit will also begin to deliver you from its corruption, to change your heart and to change your life and to make you new? Will you put your faith in Christ. But the second application I would make is this. This, this passage reminds us that what Paul is describing in, in chapters 1 to 3 and in these verses here before us, that what Paul is describing is the whole world without Jesus. And sometimes I think that we forget that when we walk outside of the walls of the church, when we leave the communion of saints, we walk into the world that is described here. The whole of it, apart from Christ. The doctrine of total depravity describes the fallenness and the, the brokenness and the rebellion against sin that is the dominating note, tone, and way and path of the world. It does not seek God, and, and the fear of God is not before its eyes. And it is swift to shed blood. We've seen it. And it does pour out venom. The venom of asps is on its list and curses and bitterness are on its tongue. We should not be surprised by what we see on the streets. We should not be surprised what we see in the halls of power. We should not be surprised what we see in the hearts of men everywhere, even in America, even in America. Daily, the doctrine of total depravity is proven on national television. It's the easiest of all the doctrines to prove. It's there demonstrated in empirical data and story after story on the news every day. We've been watching it. Oh, then this happened and that. You know, total depravity. We see it at work. Looting and destruction. Opportunism. Total depravity. Take any opportunity. It's obvious. Reality is hitting closer to home. But there's nothing new in it and nothing surprising. And so third is an application. It would be to remind us of this. That you and I as Christians are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. That is a difficult road to hoe. It's a difficult knife edge to watch, to walk, to be in the world, but to not be of the world. To live in it and function in it and try to be a good citizen in it, but, but not to be of it and not to be part of it. 
not to get sucked into its systems and its propaganda and its lies and its twisted thinking and its twisted ways, its rebellion. Through faith in Christ, we have been made new creations, citizens and subjects of the kingdom of God himself, a kingdom that is coming, that is coming day by day in those who know him and love him as the kingdom takes more and more of our hearts, more and more of our thoughts and our words and our deeds and reclaims them for Christ and reclaims them for his kingdom. It comes day by day as we are salt and light in the earth and as we are able to engage and to bring light into darkness. And when he says that the, we are in the world, but not of it, 1 John 5, 19 says it this way. We know that we are from God. We know that. We know him. We love him. He is in us and he is with us. And we have known We know that we are from God. But he says we also know this, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Do you believe that? Do we understand that? Sometimes I think in the dialogues that we're having, we are losing sight of that, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so we don't understand sometimes how we engage. We don't understand how we speak to it. We don't understand what's going on. Now, when he says the whole world lies in the power of evil, he's not talking about the physical earth and the beauty that surrounds us, although that too is broken. He is speaking about a theological and spiritual reality that engulfs the human race that is in rebellion against God. It engulfs the human race. And so all the systems and the, and the agendas that we put forth are also part of. And so it becomes something bigger. The, the world is not just the people that are fallen and broken, but the structures that those people build. It's like Babel. Babel is still being built. They've started with the, the scattered, broken human race, but they've renewed the project, and we're still trying to build Babel. And the human race is about the project in rebellion, in exalting itself, anew, in rebellion against God. This is the world project, but it is not ours. 1 John 15, 19, he says, Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. It would embrace you. But because you're not of the world, you, my friends, no longer are of the world. He says, but I chose you out of that world, out of that fallen, broken, systematic rebellion. And that's why the world hates you. Because when, like the prophets, we stand to speak against it. We call it out for what it is. When we name it, the law, the truth reveals sin. And it's what got Jesus crucified. And if you are standing for the truth, it will get you crucified. James 4.4, 4, he says, do, not, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, is hatred with God? It's in rebellion against God. It's hostile to God. It is hateful to God. And he says, in friendship with the world is to join that hatred. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And our allegiance, he is saying, our allegiance and our loyalty is to Christ and to his kingdom and not to any of the kingdoms of the earth. That he is building a kingdom out of the earth. He says, I called you out of the world to build a new kingdom. And yes, we're salt and light, and we'll get there in a minute, but let me just make this point. 
maybe my most controversial of the morning. But let me make this point. America is part of the world. America is part of the world. Sometimes I think we get confused that the whole world is out there somewhere, but somehow America is this unique animal. It's not totally depraved. Right? It's not, it's not systematically broken. It is, in this theological sense, America is in the world. It's part of the world. There's no exception. There's no exception to individual depravity. No one understands. No one sees God. No one does what is good. No, not even one. And you have to say that of the kingdoms of the earth, no, not one seeks God. No, not one. And sometimes in America, there has been an alignment that has gone in our favor. And so we have gotten confused with maybe that America is part of the kingdom of God, but it's not. And we as Christians make a dangerous mistake when we forget we live in the world and we're not of the world. And while we need to be good citizens and we need to be involved in politics and, and government has been established by God for our good, we have to be careful how we participate. We have to be engaged on the side of righteousness and justice. But we must be careful not to entrust ourselves. Remember, Jesus says he did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. And we too must not entrust ourselves to them because we know what's in their hearts. Even if it looks, even the devil can look like an angel of light at times. Their agendas and their manipulation. The left has developed a base that it manipulates. And the right has now developed a base that it manipulates. And in some ways, we're just pawns in their game. Psalm 146 says, Put not your trust in princes, for any son of man, no man in whom there is no salvation there. That's not where salvation lies. Salvation is not by the law, not by the laws of America, but the laws of God. Blessed is the one whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And so final application is simply this. We've been entrusted with the gospel. We have a message. We have the good news of a righteous and just king. The good news of a kingdom of righteousness and justice that is coming. We are the salt of the earth. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world because we have the light of the world that is the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel held in jars of clay in the midst of this dangerous and dark generation. And while we may engage in the political struggles of our day, we do so as ambassadors of Jesus Christ and him alone, who is the only true king that we can give our loyalty and our allegiance to. We are peacemakers to bring light in the darkness, hope to the hopeless, and good news to the oppressed. Because Jesus is able to deliver. Because Jesus is able to save. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great love for us. And you did not leave us like you found us. But you sent your only son to bear our flesh. To live the life that we failed to live and to die the death that we deserve to die. To bear in his own body our sin on the cross. That we might be forgiven. Oh, 
Father, this morning, renew in us this vision of King Jesus reigning on his throne, of him building his kingdom and, and calling us out of the world and, and building a church. Salt and light in the darkness with the gospel on our lips. The truth enlightening our minds that our feet would be swift to make peace, swift to speak the gospel, swift in the ways of your kingdom. We ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.